Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Karen Stein. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode, Schooled, was our season six opener. It was recorded live at the Workshop Brewing Company in Traverse City, Michigan in October 2018. After you listen to the stories, be sure to stick around to listen in as I chat about the theme for our next live show with Matt Soderquist, a frequent hearsay performer. In our first story, Jen Loop and her teammates may have taken an extracurricular assignment a little too far. It was 1995, and me, along with five other eighth grade students, were waiting in West Senior High to perform what we thought would be the most spectacular and brilliant um, eight-minute performance of our lives. Now, this was an extracurricular activity. This was for Odyssey of the Mind. Odyssey, yay, I know. Um, I, I will explain a little bit about Odyssey of the Mind for those that don't know. I had been involved in a few different um, Odyssey of the Mind teams as I was growing up. They usually involve having a long-term problem. So this is something where you get parameters, you have to come up with a solution, um, and you have to present this in front of judges. So in the past, I had done a balsa wood project where you have to build a structure out of balsa wood and glue and see how much weight it can take. Um, this one was more skit-based, and this, um, to get the full story, I actually went back online and found the prompt for this 1995 Odyssey of the Mind long-term problem. So the prompt is, classics, vaudeville. The team's problem is to develop and perform a vaudeville show that will have three or more original acts, an MC, and a commercial. One of the acts must relate to one aspect of society that the team decides is positive. Performers must include an elaborate membership sign. Time limit, eight minutes. Cost limit, $80. So this team that I was a part of um, what consisted of a group of kids that I had been in school with uh, for four classes a day each day um, from the beginning of seventh grade. And this was going to be a class, it was a tracked class, that I would end up spending this amount of time with them all the way through high school. Now, we were all creative types, and we were all performer types. Um, we were also used to succeeding in these kind of endeavors. And when we came up with this idea to do the classics vaudeville problem, we thought we would kip it, kick it up a notch. So when you're working on these, it's an after-school project. You spend months meeting, coming up with ideas. You have, a, uh, you have a coach, a teacher, who helps you through this, but is not supposed to give you ideas. They're supposed to offer guidance, and it's supposed to be up to the students to come up with what our answer is to this, um, to this story. And so this was eighth grade, and one of the wonderful things about knowing these people so well throughout high school is I was able to go back and ask at least three of them personally what they remembered from this project. We are all still close friends. Now, one person remembered that there was a bit of a schism between the two boys and the four girls. This was eighth grade, this was junior high. And I do vaguely have an idea of sitting in those East Junior High hallways, all teal. It was like teal lockers and teal floor, um, trying to come up with a way to work with them, but then probably doing our own thing, spray painting our, prop, our props. Um, putting together our script, and I'm sure there was some collaboration, but also we were all kind of on our own, on our own trajectory. Um, as we were putting this together, we all thought we had a pretty brilliant thing going on. Again, we were used to being fairly successful, we were used to being creative, and we thought, we're gonna make this the best vaudeville show you've ever seen. So, we're at Weston Your High, anticipating this, this uh, program about to go on. So there's a judge's table, and we're out in the hallway. All of our whole skit was supposed to be fit in one wooden box. Now, you remember, there's an elaborate sign that needs to be involved. So we haul out this box. I would love to perform the whole skit for you, but I have less than eight minutes. And the elaborate sign idea we came up with was 
we were going to put a sheet that we had spray painted to look like bricks up with some tent poles and hope that this stood up because one of the requirements was that the sign had to stand alone. This was our definition of elaborate. It was, it was going to be the biggest sign. Now, that came together sort of without a hitch. I do remember it leaning one way, and I don't think it was exactly what they were thinking about when they had an idea of a vaudeville act, but all right. And we proceed with a skit that we had decided shouldn't just be vaudeville acts, but it should be a whole general representation of all of society as we knew it. So, we had four characters. One was our PC character, one was our non-PC character, one was our arts character, and one was our technology character. All of these people we're going to meet and then come to a, a, a lovely conclusion and all get along. Of course, this wasn't enough. We had to make all of these characters be meeting on the street as if they were hobos around a garbage fire. This was gonna make this come together. I'm not sure how all these people came together. So, I began this skit, um, I sang, I still sing, I sang a lot in high school, um, by a lovely, or with a lovely rendition of Who Will Buy from Oliver the Musical, as I carried out a basket of flowers because I was a hippie and I was the PC character. I'm not really sure how I sang. I know that I was terrified because though I sang in choir quite a lot, I was not a solo singer. And I was also dressed like a hippie and this was the first time I probably ever did and ever have since then shown my stomach in public. <laughs> so there was me for our MC. We didn't need an MC. Our MC was veiled as all our characters unveiled, as all our characters came together as the garbage fire itself personified. She had wonderful flames, she had this cape. Uh, she was the one that was gonna bring all our characters together. We had our tech-related character, was a wonderful geeky-dressed girl who was going to do a tap dance routine. Then, one of our other vaudeville acts was a gentleman who was first chair violin. So of course he would perform the violin. Now, he also happened to break his leg a few weeks before the performance, so he was in a wheelchair. <laughs> I really wish I could remember the entire skit for you, but I do have some lines, because we did rhyme. Um, as we were going through this and, and everyone was dredging up memories, we did realize someone has a script somewhere, but this is what we can remember. You're full of it, you liberal. That's non-PC. We've got to save our minerals. The future's in technology. I stand, sit, for sociology. <laughs> that was our really good eighth grade joke because he couldn't stand up. <laughs> I might also note that uh, in order to create ambiance for this, at the very beginning of our skit, we ran by the judges table with a gasoline-soaked rag so we could add smells to the entire situation. So, classic vaudeville. <laughs> All of us uh, really had a great time putting this together. And so we went through everything. We actually ended this with a rousing chorus of the Beatles' We, Should, we Can Work It Out, sung in harmony. I'm sure we came to a good conclusion. And we eagerly anticipated the results from the judges. Now, another aspect of OM, or Odyssey of the Mind, is there's a spontaneous question. That is something you don't know about until the day of the competition. You go in, it's usually a verbal or a, um, a kind of building problem solving sort of thing. So make a structure out of little plastic straws and marshmallows, or here are four pictures and how do they relate? We did really well on spontaneous. We were all very able to quickly come up with solutions to things when we didn't have three months to think about how big of a solution we could come up, to some, come up for something. So we did well on Spontaneous. We waited for our long-term problem scores. They came back, and we didn't win. <laughs> we didn't even come close. Um, I would like to think we were disappointed, but something about us there, it was a, it, we were very lucky in that we were in a environment where we felt supported. Our coach thought it was brilliant. 
it probably was not brilliant. Um, and it was so far off the mark that I can only marvel at the fact that we went through that. We thought this was something that everyone's going to appreciate and probably change the world, quite frankly. And yet, no one really seemed to understand it. So we moved on. There were other OM teams. I am still friends with many of the people on this team, and I count myself fortunate for those kind of experiences. So here's to all of those opportunities to put so much heart and creativity into something that no one else understands it. <laughs> In the next story, a college professor is making Dave Murphy and his classmates, especially the women, very uncomfortable. It was spring of my first year in graduate school, and the times were less enlightened than we might hope that they were. Uh, a case in point is back then when we sneezed, instead of going into our elbows, we would pull out something like this, and after we'd use it, we'd return it to our pockets. We were barbarians. <laughs> so uh, spring term is underway, and uh, I'm taking an economics class with who is alleged to be a university uh, legend. And uh, the gentleman arrives at the first day of class. He is tall, skinny, old. Uh, wears a beautiful suit, and the first thing he does is he starts playing the university's pep song. And he insists we all stand and sing with him. He ended up doing a solo because none of us knew the words. He was outraged, but he was prepared. He had handouts. He passed them out. He said, you will all learn this song, and we'll keep singing it until you have it nailed. That was the most learning that took place in that first day of class. Um, what we soon realized was that the university legend was teaching on fumes. Uh, most of the ensuing classes were tangent-filled. He liked sports, singing the song. Uh, it was quite a disappointment. Uh, this had been billed highly as a class we should anticipate and we'd really learn from. Sometime into the spring term, it actually turned green, and our university campus was sprawling, beautiful gardens. And uh, the flower gardens in particular were spectacular. And I remember there were large signs posted by the rose gardens in particular that uh, stealing the roses was a prosecutable offense. And so the university's legendary professor shows up at our class with two roses and proudly boasts that he's stolen them. And we had a typical uh, classroom setting uh, back then, at least then it was. Uh, the professor was at a lower level and we had tears that went up uh, that he faced. And so with one of the uh, first levels had a number of female students there. And the professor took one of his stolen roses and he brought it over to a female student. And he handed it to her and she said thank you. And he said thanks is nice but isn't there something more? And uh, she was confused. Keep in mind, these are less enlightened times. I'm old. This was some years ago. And the professor said, in return for roses from a gentleman, a kiss is expected. And we were all uncomfortable. I shouldn't say all. There were a few guys who hooted. But most of us were uncomfortable, and especially this young woman. And so there was some back and forth. She resisted. He persisted. He finally got his way. She gave him a little peck on the cheek. That was enough. As he turned to walk away, she made this obvious gesture of disgust. She wiped her face, and we all laughed. That was the funny part. And the professor took that as they're in on the joke. He missed the fact that we were laughing at him, not with him. Uh, he took the second rose, and he repeated the ruse with a second female student, just as uncomfortable. We were hoping that this would be a one-off event. It would happen, and it would be over with. But the next class came and he did the same thing. Two more stolen roses, two more very ugly, inappropriate demands for kisses, and none of us had the guts to stand up to him, including me. Um, another class day came, two more roses. I was actually entering a little bit late. He was coming down from a different entry point. I was coming in, 
And when I saw the roses, uh, as soon as he appeared with them, a woman called out from up top. She said, I want a rose. And most of us were kind of in the same age range. I was 22. Some of the students were maybe mid-20s. This woman was a little bit older. She was probably early 30s, clearly a professional. She was dressed better than the rest of us impeccably every day. And she strided down to the professor's level. She embraced him. She gave him a lingering kiss. She extricated the two roses from his hands, and she started to return up the stairs. You could just see the women in the class seething. They knew that the bar had been raised. Maybe they felt like they were going to avoid harassment this particular day, but they certainly didn't want to be held out to compare with this woman. I distinctly remember as she came in my direction, there was a guy she seemed to associate with. Uh, they were together once in a while. And you know how you can kind of whisper yell, especially when you've got an older teacher who doesn't hear well? So the guy whisper yelled, you whore. And as she came by, I remember she had these unsmiling teeth that were bared. And she said, whatever it takes, besides I got it over with. She knew the game she had to play. The professor looked smitten. He was having the time of his life. But it was so disturbing to me, and I'll tell you more about why it was disturbing, but first, the next episode. We head into class again, and same thing. The guy enters one more time, two more roses. And by this point, he's hit the students, the female students at the lower tier. And you can see him eyeballing the classroom. He's like a predator, and he zeroes in on a young woman who's probably up around the third tier. And I still remember, because we could all spot who he had zeroed in on, and as she knew that she was the next victim, she immediately started to blush. She was fair-skinned. And uh, the professor started to make his way up. He was gangly. It was an awkward seating arrangement. But he finally got in front of the young woman. And he held out the rose. And he said, you know the game, a rose for a kiss. And she shook her head no. And that was a first. No one had overtly declined him before. And it generated a few oohs from the students. But the professor wasn't going to back down. And he said, you want a rose, don't you? And she said, I'll take the rose, but not the other part. And uh, that was the first lesson in economics that we actually had uh, <laughs> learned in that class. So uh, he wasn't phased. That, that got a laugh. But he wasn't phased. He stayed at her. It was getting increasingly uncomfortable. He was getting, uh, he lost the uh, jolliness. He was not happy. And finally, he got much more aggressive. He stuck the rose in her face, and he said, a rose for the kiss now. And she shook her head no again. And this continued to play out. And I can't tell you how uncomfortable it was becoming. It was much more silent than it is right now. She finally accepted the rose. He said, you've got the rose. I get my kiss. She shook her head no again. The uh, professor was pissed. And I, I remember the stillness in the room, and finally a male voice called out and said, just kiss him, get it over with. And I think many of us felt that way. It was so painful. She wouldn't. The professor leaned in. He said, no rose, give back the, or no kiss, give back the goddamn rose. She put it out in his face. And he took it. He snatched it. He glared at her. He turned. And I remember him saying, this is going to cost you. He headed back to his teaching area. He pitched the roses, and he stood with his back to the crowd. And I just remember him trying to gather himself. And he did something next that was so unexpected, we didn't see it coming. He held himself in that position for a bit. I was thinking, if you have any humanity in you, you're going to retreat to your office. You're going to dismiss class. You're going to retreat to your office. You're going to spend a couple hours in silent humiliation and never do it again. But he did something entirely different. He turned around, and he began to teach. The old duffer actually had something left in the tank. He actually could teach. He just needed to be confronted. Class ended, and I headed to my typical place, which was the graduate library. Usually what happened after class was many of the students who got along would head someplace else, grab a cup of coffee. I was a loner. And uh, part of why this all had troubled me so much is that I was raised by a single mother. 
My father died when I was young. Everybody's got a sob story, so I'm not going to get into it. But we didn't have much. And what I remember most is that for the first couple years after my dad's death, every night, every night, my mother came home crying. And it was because she was the brightest person in the room, the best intentioned person in the room, but she was demeaned in her job every day. And so to be in this classroom with this going on, uh, and the other irony of it was, the one lesson my mother taught me above all else, she didn't have much education herself, was you're going to educate yourself out of this. You're going to get into a program where you won't have to face what I faced all my life. But I didn't belong there. I had no business in a business curriculum. I don't have an atom of capitalism in my body. <laughs> so I, I had felt out of place for a long time. This class was highlighting just how out of place I was. So I was sitting there thinking, what the hell am I even doing here? And I looked up, and there was the young woman who had rejected the professor's advances. And, and I, I remember thinking, what is she doing alone? This is, um, if there's any justification to get together and go do something, this would be it. And yet, there she was alone like I was. And I decided I need to go say something to her. And I was absolutely sincere with what I said. I, I grew up in a rough environment. I saw a lot of ugly things. But what I said when I went over to her was, that was the single gutsiest thing I've ever seen in my life. Those were the first words I spoke to the woman I'd eventually marry. Her, her name is Sue Peters. She's in the back. My name is Dave Murphy. She's Sue Peters because I kept my maiden name. <laughs> there, there's, two, there's two central takeaways from this to me. One is I would never have introduced myself to Sue if she had kissed that old latch. That's not like she got the prize, trust me. <laughs> Some, sometimes I wonder if she wishes she had kissed him. But it's just interesting the layers of the ripple effect of an act of courage. And then the second takeaway is sometimes against all odds, there's something to be said about being in the wrong place, but at the right time. Thank you. Next up is a story about being an adjunct instructor trying to be noticed by the college staff, told by me. I got my master's degree in creative writing in the late 1990s um, in hopes of one day getting a position teaching writing. Uh, but there were so many of us out there, and jobs were very few and very competitive. And all that was left for unpublished scrubs like myself were the adjunct positions that pay like crap. So when I was in between jobs after a layoff in the early 2000s, I decided to try to get a teaching job the old-fashioned way, the optimistic way. Just teach whatever you can and hope that you get their attention. So I took on some adjunct teaching jobs, teaching English at local community colleges. Um, and I first cut my teeth at a few community colleges in the suburbs and um, at a technical arts college in downtown Chicago. You know, one of those schools with degrees in like interior design, graphic design, video production, culinary. The first course I taught at the technical arts college was English fundamentals. See, I had thought that I was going to go in and you know, change their lives and teach them how to be so creative and teach them how to use images to create a lasting, memorable piece. But unfortunately, uh, many of these students had been failed by their previous schools and they could not put together a cohesive essay, let alone a coherent sentence. And so <laughs> I had to adjust my expectations for this class and take them way, way back to the very, very basics. Sentence fragments, run-on sentences, comma splices, subject-verb agreement, don't write LOL in your essay. <laughs> don't type smiley faces in your essay. And I probably smelled nervous. I mean, students can always tell when you're nervous. Um, and I was so thrown off by how minimal were their communication skills that I really kind of let them just go off. Like, like, I let them challenge me a little bit too much. And boy, did they challenge me on everything. 
Why do you correct us when, you call, when we call you Mrs. Stein? Why should we listen to you at all? How is this relevant to my degree? How will this help me in my future? Who gives a shit about semicolons? And you know the joke uh, was on them for that one because the answer is nobody. Nobody gives a shit about semicolons. <laughs> Unless you're an editor. And I will always lecture on the proper use of semicolons if I see them used incorrectly. And also, side note, I'm a lot of fun at parties. <laughs> so by the time I learned to shut that shit down and just say to them, this is part of the learning outcomes and you can't complain your way out of it. Um, they were actually showing signs that despite their resistance, it was seeping in. They were actually handing in semi-decent work. And at the end of the term, I only had to fail one student, and it was only because he didn't hand in all of his work. It was not because he wasn't getting it. So at the start of this next quarter, something flipped, and I just felt so much more confident before the classroom. Um, I was teaching fundamentals and English one, and um, at the downtown school, and then a few classes at other schools um, in the suburbs. And there were some familiar faces in my downtown classroom. Uh, students who had taken me for fundamentals did follow me on to English One. Um, some of them because they really liked my teaching style, but some of them forgot that I'm Stein. So <laughs> when they signed up for the class and they walked in, and they're like, damn it. <laughs> <coughs> but those disappointed looks just rolled right off me because I was throwing myself all in. I still had no full-time job and it was easy to do that from a time perspective. <clears throat> I would field student emails with questions about assignments. I would come in early, stay late, come in on my day off just to tutor students who needed extra help. I would, uh, I would write paragraphs upon paragraphs upon paragraphs of feedback on their essays. Um, you know, this is why this works. This is why this doesn't work. Have you considered this angle? What about that? Um, because just a letter grade at the end of a, a you know, 25-page paper, that's not helping them become better writers. You know, if I just say, you know, subject-verb agreement, D, like that doesn't teach you anything. So I wanted to give them the tools to be actually better writers. And I would even go to department meetings on my days that I didn't have to be there. And certainly I was trying to be seen and heard and create a reputation as being a very dedicated educator. Especially since there were a whole lot of us lurking, you know, kind of like waiting, just waiting for some full-time English instructor to quit. Because we were all ready to pounce. In the meantime, though, I really didn't mind all this work that I was putting into it. I truly loved what I was doing. But here's the thing. From, from a financial standpoint, when you're an adjunct instructor, you have to love what you're doing. You're only paid for the hours in, your, in the classroom. You're not paid for office hours or to meet with students or to answer emails or even to grade 25 25-page papers. <laughs> um, you know, you have to do that on your own time. And so I was pretty much making $120 a week for each class. Yeah, a lot of uh, adjunct instructors actually go severely into debt. That's a thing. <laughs> so, um, you know, I could have easily just bagged the feedback and done that whole great work, B. <laughs> but, you know, saved myself some time, saved myself the risk of resentment of the workload to time investment ratio. Um, but if all I was going to do was write that solitary letter at the end of the page, or at the end of the paper, could I really call myself a teacher? Um, ultimately, I quit teaching at all the other schools and only taught at the downtown school. These students were my favorite, and for some of them, I was their favorite. I had a reputation as the English teacher you learned from while having fun. My classes were always full, and aside from you know, the occasional grumpy, and unimpressed person. Uh, my end of term reviews were always very positive. And students who followed me from fundamentals to English one also followed me on to English two. All the reports from Michael, my department head, noted that I should keep up the good work. It seemed like my students liked me. I thought that was a testament to my reputation and the student's preference for me, that I lucked out and was assigned one term to teach the most coveted class in all of the humanities department media and culture. It was a really fun class. <laughs> and it was, 
really hard to get assigned to that one class. They only offered it once per, per quarter. Um, I even took on an assignment to teach a speech class for someone going on maternity leave, even though at the time I didn't know anything about that topic. And it seemed like everything was falling into place. I was getting attention for all my hard work. I was also getting some attention from a student who'd taken a few classes with me. He seemed to be flirting every time we uh, bumped into each other in the hall. He would email me questions about the classes that I wasn't teaching. He would, <coughs> he would uh, email me questions about things he was reading, or he would send me some analyses of music compared to literature. And admittedly, he was pretty cute and very, very charming. And I developed a bit of a crush on him. He was an adult. <laughs> but no way was I going to compromise my ethics to date a student. I was so much better than that. So it was sometime during my seventh consecutive quarter teaching at this school that I was called in to have a meeting with Michael. And he was generally pretty hands off. So uh, you know, I thought maybe this was finally <clears throat> where it all clicked. Maybe he wants to acknowledge my work. Maybe he wants me to take on more classes. Maybe I get media and culture for all of eternity. Maybe there was a full-time job coming up. He led with this. It has been brought to my attention that you do not wear a brassiere. <laughs> so, okay, if I must defend my brawlessness to all of you, all I can say is that those were some pre-birth control pill boobs that I had then. <laughs> and I didn't feel like I needed a bra, but that said, it was also a very, very cold building. Um, so I guess it was more noticeable than I thought. And after 15 minutes in this dimly lit broom closet of an office, being lectured by this man about boobs and professionalism, most of which I missed because my face was red hot and my head was just spinning, I was in a daze. By the time I got home that night, that red hot face had converted to white hot rage. I realized that in the almost two years that I'd been teaching at that school, the only real feedback I'd gotten on my job performance was how my boobs looked. And the only real job performance improvement suggestion I'd received was put on a bra. You know that feeling when you've been in love with someone and then one day you just look at them and you're like, oh, I don't like how you treat me. <laughs> that was the feeling running through my boiling blood that day. And the, the remainder of the quarter, in fact. All that work, all that dedication, all that investment in student success. It's so hard to care when nobody else does. I hated that it had all boiled down to me saying, fuck this shit. But it was clear every day that I had class that I was not soon going to overcome this humiliation. I didn't sign on to teach new classes in the following quarter, and soon after, one of the full-time English instructors did, in fact, quit. But I knew I hadn't miscalculated. There was no way I was ever going to be offered that job. I ended up instead finding a full-time job as an editor, forever correcting use of semicolons, <laughs> and living with my boyfriend that flirty former student for the following five years. Thank you. In our last story, Crystal Frost realizes at a reunion how strange it is that she feels connected to former classmates given her unusual high school years. Okay, so you guys, two days ago, I was standing in a barn in Benzie County, and I was punch dancing to Salt and Pepper. I actually, I actually uh, accidentally punched a classmate while punch dancing because I was surrounded by people I hadn't seen in 20 years, but these are the people that I had been connected to for four very interesting, very painful, very awkward, very complicated years of my life, this is high school reunion. <laughs> and there we were, huddled in these familiar little cliques that we fell into 20 years ago. And we were all like looking on an empty dance floor, like sipping our beers, 
very slowly, the liquid courage that we hope to remove, some of that awkwardness that was basically just residual high school. And I actually thought that years of social media access might have made these reuni reunions a little easier to swallow, right? Because we were all friends on Facebook. And we all have this like vague, voyeuristic idea of what everyone is up to. But in real life, just like in high school, we don't know shit. So we all reverted back to our adolescent personas, like the gossipy people were all gossipy, and like the cool people were all like cool, you know? And the geeks were all successful. <laughs> it was fascinating. This room full of people who spent years, day after day, in the same world, and we were the people who signed yearbooks with inside jokes and then phrases like, oh my god, never change. <laughs> I remember reading that being like, I hope I change. <laughs> or, didn't really know ya, but love ya forever. <laughs> and we're standing side by side with the same people. And we're all sort of in these groups, the same groups that you sat next to in the cafeteria 20 years later. So looking back on it, all two days ago, <laughs> I mean, I've had some time to reflect. <laughs> it's actually kind of perfect that I was the one that planned this reunion, because in the past, I was never really a part of a group. It wasn't like I was disliked or anything. I was just never really around for long enough to make, to make it to a regular cafeteria table or really for anybody to really know who I was or what I was doing. So not surprisingly, that's exactly what I did at the reunion that I hosted. I was buzzing around from table to table saying things like, oh my gosh, it's so good to see you. Quick, who is this person? <laughs> and then I was giving quick hugs and I was letting people know where to pee, where to drink, and I was walking away. It was like Crystal Frost, the elusive queen of small talk, which I find very fascinating now that I talk for a living. So my high school experience um, was, I think a lot of people had an interesting high school experience, but mine was most likely pretty different than the people in my high school. Possibly different from some of the people in this room. My parents were divorced, that's not the, the interesting thing. But neither of them had really, they never had graduated high school. My mom um, had gotten pregnant with me when she was 16, and she dropped out to have a family. And her biggest goal as a mom was that I didn't get pregnant at 16. So when I turned 16, and I wasn't pregnant, she had a party for herself. <laughs> she deserved that. And she encouraged school. I mean, she liked it, of course, but she, she didn't follow up with homework or grades. I mean, she didn't really know what was going on there. And, and honestly, I always did fine in school, so she never really had to do much of anything. There were never any phone calls from principals. <laughs> I wasn't that kid, and I was getting decent grades all the time. So it was a really strange surprise to all of us when she made this hasty, out-of-the-blue decision to pull me out of Traverse City Area Public Schools the summer before ninth grade to homeschool me. <laughs> it was a Christian homeschool in the 90s. And every subject somehow brought a faith-based element. So math would include some confusing story problem about like multiplying the sins of Adam and Eve to answer for disproving evolution. <laughs> and my mom was supposed to be teaching me in theory, but she was like, this is too hard. <laughs> so she just handed me the textbook and the answer book. And then every month she would drive me to see this teacher, Mr. H. So honestly, my first year of high school started like this wake up at 11 a.m., <laughs> read a little bit just to make it look like you're trying, then copy all of the answers onto the page, 
just in time to watch Days of Our Lives at one o'clock. <laughs> yeah. And that was it. Mr. H, by the way, this guy was cool, he was a cool cat, but he was so old, like really old. Like, sometimes I was afraid he wasn't breathing old. And his schoolhouse was his house, and everything in his schoolhouse was covered in shag carpet. I mean everything, blue shag carpet. And he coughed a lot, like after every sentence. So good old Mr. H would go through our packets of work for the month, one by one, and he was really easy to distract. And I was really, I really like to distract people. So at our monthly meetings, it would go a little something like this. Hey, show me your pages. Start with 27 to 35 and <laughs> explain your answers. And I would, say, I would say, what do you mean explain your answers? And he would say, huh? And I would say, what do you mean by explain your answers? And he would say, huh? And I would say again, what do you mean explain your answers? Do you mean you want me to explain what I was thinking at the time I answered them? Or do you want me to like read the answers? Because Mr. H, if they're correct, then this is all probably self-explanatory, don't you think? And he would say, what? <laughs> and I would say, exactly. And then he would say, show me the pages. And then he'd go, <laughs> and then I would go, here you go. And then he'd say, now tell me what you think. And I would say, I found the chapter on why dinosaurs are only 2,000 years old particularly fascinating. <laughs> and he would say, class dismissed. <laughs> but he would forget that he would say that, so we would just stare at each other for a while. And I would say, can I go now? And he'd say, huh? And I'd say, can I go now? And he'd say, huh? And I'd say, my mom is honking her horn outside, can I go? And he would say, your mom is honking her horn outside, time to go. <laughs> so needless to say, my education that year was non-existent. So instead of actually trying to teach myself any of this stuff, I took a job working mornings at Burger King. Yeah. And I was about 14 at the time. And I took this morning job there so I could get done at noon, so I could get home in time to watch Days of Our Lives, <laughs> the most important part of my school day. And then a day or two before I met Mr. H, I would copy all of the answers and bullshit my way through that meeting all the time. That, this was my ninth grade year. So at the end of the year, my mom, probably a good idea, changed her mind about this whole homeschooling thing. But she didn't send me back to Traverse City Schools. She decided that I needed a smaller school, so she sent me to live with my grandma in Benzie. And so I started what I thought would be my sophomore year at Benzie Central High School. Um, but it turns out that even though Mr. H was a real teacher, a lot of the credits that I earned wouldn't transfer because they weren't recognized by the state of Michigan. And also because nobody reminded me that I needed to take exams or standardized tests. So I entered Benzie as a freshman, and to this day, I still refer to that time in homeschool as my gap year. <laughs> and living with my grandma was like having a hall mother of sorts at a boarding school, only you're the only kid at the boarding school. Unlike my mom, the only thing she really cared about was my education. She was all up in my business, you know? A complete 180 to, you know, compared to copying answers from a book and confusing a teacher. My grandma was tough, and I, I liked it, because I actually learned things, right? And it was the kind of structure and those boundaries I didn't realize that I had really been craving. So for the first two years, it was, it was pretty great. And then my mom wanted me to move back with her because the state of Michigan adopted the school of choice thing. So I could just drive myself to school and I didn't have to live with my grandma, right? So I lived with my mom a little bit during junior year, but the number of humans living in my mother's house had become unmanageable. 
She was like hoarding children. I don't think she realized she had a problem. And it was weird. Just when you thought you had seen all of them, another one would like crawl out of a cabinet. And, uh, and it was very odd. <laughs> I, I am the oldest of nine children. And seven, I know, that's the right reaction. That's the reaction. Oh my God. Seven of us though, were living in a three bedroom house. Seven children, two adults, nine people. One bathroom. Again. So what it meant for me was that four girls were sleeping in a room that was meant maybe for two people. My brother was bunking in the other room with like two babies. <laughs> Poor guy. Um, so when you walked into our small room, you were sure to run into a bed. There were beds everywhere. You didn't know where they came from. There was a bunk bed that had a trundle that pulled out from under the bottom bunk. And then there was a fold-up bed that sat in the corner until it was time to sleep. And clothes. Clothing everywhere because we were four girls in this room. I mean, if you asked me the color of the carpeting in that room, I would have said shirts. <laughs> so many shirts. So many people in one little room. I realized I had had enough of living in this place when I woke up to use the bathroom in the middle of the night. And as I was climbing down from the top bunk, I tripped on someone's head, plunging forward to hit my head on the wall. And I packed up my stuff the next week and I rented a spare room from my boss at the restaurant I worked at um, for the rest of my junior year in high school. And, and it was nice, you know, I was paying my own bills, it was fine. So by the time I was a senior, about halfway, midway through my senior year, living in this uh, rented apartment, I decided I'm working full time, I'm going to school, I'm renting this, I'm gonna rent my own apartment with an older friend that I worked with at the restaurant. So while all my classmates are going to visit college campuses, I was like rolling pennies to make rent and taking expired items from the salad bar at the restaurant home. My refrigerator was awesome, by the way. Fruit salads, brown lettuce, ranch dressing. <laughs> it was amazing. And it wasn't like I'm complaining because having an apartment in high school definitely had its advantages. I mean, I totally had the party spot. But then I had to, you know, clean up after everybody who <laughs> came over to the party spot. And working all the time and growing up so quickly made it really hard to actually have connections with those people I spent Saturday night with. I noticed that uh, when I was walking around the reunion this weekend, that so many memories were made while I was just working to pay for car insurance. And my classmates, though, were reverting back to their high school personas, and I was still feeling like I didn't really ever belong. And I know you're supposed to feel nostalgic at reunions, and I really did, but I also felt like I had missed out on this very important rite of passage. But then, something kind of magical happened, and it was in the middle of all the 90s glory, and it happened like most important things do, as we drunkenly followed Cupid's instructions to the Cupid Shuffle. Somewhere between to the left, to the left, to the left, to the left, now kicks, now kicks, now kicks, now kicks, a thought went walking by itself <laughs> down into my brain. Because the real parallel to my story, the future to the past, is that right now, I have two boys in high school. I have a senior who is driven and mature for his age, but also kind of dumb sometimes. And <laughs> I'm serious. He's not mature out of necessity. And I have a freshman who still needs to be reminded to put on deodorant. But I have these two amazing kids who get to go to all of these things, these football games, and they get to sleep in on Saturdays. And they get to act kind of annoying, and they get to whine about chores and get into a little mischief. And these are kids 
that are making these memories that they're going to be sharing with their high school friends the real connections that they've made. Maybe in a barn somewhere 20 years from now, standing awkwardly in little packs to share some of those memories that made them a little bit of who they are. But I think the best part is that I get to do that too with all of the friends that I have beyond high school, the friends that really know me, the friends I have connections with, some of them in this very room. And we get to reunite to laugh about those memories for years to come. Thank you. earlier in the podcast, Matt Soderquist, a frequent hearsay storyteller, is joining us in the studio today to talk about the theme of the next live hearsay show, Beat the Clock. Matt, thanks for being here today. Hi, Karen. How you doing? Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> so, Matt, when I say Beat the Clock, I always get this song stuck in my head. It's a 1979 Sparks song of the same name. So when you first hear Beat the Clock, what do you think of? Definitely not a song. I was born after that song came out. I think that you should sing a couple lyrics. I see. I'm a wonderful singer. Yeah. <laughs> and by that, I mean terrible. Um, it's like, going to beat the clock. We're going to beat the clock. It's just, it's a fun poppy song. Yeah. Uh, I like it. We're going to have to have AJ put it in. Hell yeah. 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 You know, but beat the clock, though, really rings true for me when, when we start talking about sports. I, I, I re- I've ran the Bayshore Marathon a couple times, and, and two years I attempted to run it, and I'm, I'm not, not fast by any means. Uh, sl- I'm a slow runner, and I always try to just beat the cutoff, mm-hmm. right? I don't <laughs> want to be the, the, the last one. We usually have six hours to finish the Bayshore Marathon, and, and two years ago it, it was just miserably hot. It was almost 70 degrees when, when we started the race, and by late morning it was already into the 80s. And uh, it, it, we call them the sweeper. Uh, that's the, the volunteers who come to the end of the line. If you're not hitting certain points, certain mile markers by certain points, then you get swept off the course. And, uh, you know, mile 18, two years ago, I, I, I was done. I just, just couldn't make it. So then you get to have this really awkward ride with uh, what they call the sag wagon or the volunteer sweeper. Uh, so you jump in their car and they get to drive you back to the, this finish. It's kind of this walk of shame. Is it awkward? Like, are they asking you, like, what happened? <laughs> no, you know, the volunteers are super nice. And they're like, uh, you know, uh, nice work. You know, you'll be glad you did this. And, uh, you know, not everybody can run 18 miles, but there's still a little bit of shame and, and, and disappointment, you know, that comes with not being able to, to meet that deadline and beat the clock. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, when I was uh, in high school, I was on the gymnastics team. And, you know, there's not really beating the clock because we have set times that we have to be done with our routines. Like for the floor routine, it's two and a half minutes. And one of our teammates couldn't show up. I was actually a freshman at this time. And she had, I don't know what happened, but she didn't show up. And so I was our strongest tumbler on the freshman team and the most ambitious also. And the, uh, I mean, as far as expecting, like, I deserve to be on the JV team. And I totally didn't. I just, you know, I thought I did. Um, I'm a lot more humble now in my old age. <laughs> but the uh, the coach asked me, will you step in and take on her role, her, her part on the team so that we can at least have a shot? And but like the freshman routine was like it was the same thing. All the freshman competitors had to do the exact same routine. So, of course, with my ambition, I decided I'm going to make something up like on the spot. So we get to the gym and I just spend the entire morning making something up to uh, the overture from Tommy um, by the who. And um, (laughs) when it was my turn, finally, I signaled the judge. I get on stage and I remembered my first five seconds and then totally went blank. And I'll tell you, like as far as like two and a half minutes is very long when you don't know what you're doing. (laughs) It's more like a, oh my God, clock move faster please situation and this is like a floor routine so you're like doing backflips and cartwheels and I, I, I maybe i could have but i was so blank in the brain that i just did like front walkovers for two and a half minutes 
<laughs> but you know, I said my team was very bad. Actually, our whole conference was very bad. I got a fourth place ribbon for that, um, <laughs> because yeah, I, I had a strong front walkover game back then. Another thing about you know beating the clock or you know accommodating the clock, the stories that we tell on stage. I mean, they're timed. I mean, the the goal is about ten minutes. Sometimes people go over, sometimes people go under, um, but it's really easy once you get going on stage to just talk for the rest of your life. <laughs> I think right now the, uh, the, the record for longest story told on stage is 25 minutes, um, and the person who told that story has a great sense of humor about it, mm-hmm. um, but 25 minutes, that's long for a story, especially if you have six stories in a night. So how do you, uh, how do you conceive of your stories with that? time limit in mind. Yeah, 10 minutes uh, definitely goes by extremely fast. Um, you know, when I first started out, I didn't really know, you know, the first one or two stories that I told, um, it, you know, you you definitely helped out a lot to kind of craft the the story itself. But it, it wasn't until I got on stage a couple of times that I, I kind of started to learn almost the science of, of, of the storytelling. You know, we talk a lot about the art of storytelling. But uh, we don't talk a lot about this, the science of storytelling. And one of the things that I do to prepare for the story is just, you know, do your SFD or we call it like your shitty first draft, right? And just kind of puke on the page and, and then go from there. And if I can do 1,000 to 1,200 words, that's kind of my starting point. You know, I know I have to kind of be in that range if I want to hit a 10-minute story, not go too far over or not be too far under. And, and then we can start really crafting the, the other uh, important aspects of, of telling a story with content, your structure, uh, focusing on your emotional impact, and, and your delivery. Yeah, there was one story that was told um, at a show a couple seasons ago where um, it was a little on the long side, but there were a few meandering spots that were so funny that it was hard to be mad mm-hmm. <laughs> about how long the story was. And I, I use the word mad loosely, of course, but um, it is really difficult. But I do something similar where I just I write the whole thing and then I show it to someone. Um, my sister actually because she knows my life Um, and then she'll give me her feedback and then I'll just make my edits based on what she said Um, and then I'll just keep massaging it massaging it massaging it and I always time it last but I also will say that especially like if you're at an open mic one of the hardest lessons is that um, laughter counts toward your timer (laughs) like you get dinged at seven minutes if you tell a funny story you know and you have to wait for everyone to stop laughing that they don't stop the clock for the laughter <laughs> yeah and sometimes sometimes those tactical pauses you know really contribute you know you kind of bring the audience to the edge of their seat by by just kind of pausing for a second mm-hmm. or like like you're saying a laugh or or a cry um you know sometimes you just need to give the audience permission to laugh by you know kind of smiling or starting to laugh yourself yeah. uh, before or after what what you've just told so simply reading your story is not really a good time time indicator of how long it's going to be exactly exactly i always tell people to uh, the best way to really plan for how long it's actually going to take is to read to something with eyes and to read out loud to something with eyes Uh, i was at a museum once and i was getting really nervous about my performance um, because it was a new stage for me and it was a very difficult story that i was going to be telling and so i just kind of sneaked out of the the auditorium and went into the this part where they have a taxidermized polar bear and I told my story to the polar bear <laughs> like three times and by the way he loved it <laughs> but I could tell um but yeah it was like it was so helpful to just work on my pacing just knowing that something someone is looking at me mm-hmm. like someone's taking this in but yeah the uh the, I always say the art of so- uh, storytelling is how do you tell a complete story that's entertaining and gets your point across without telling everything because no one experience exists in a vacuum. You know, everything that happens to us, usually there's some connection to something that happened a while before and what happens to us now is going to affect things later. So like, how do you tell that complete story that's entertaining? Yeah. And I, I've had people come up to me after telling a story and they'll ask me questions of, about the story, not necessarily because they felt like it was incomplete, but just because they had a different 
takeaway from it than maybe, you know, the point that, that uh, you had or you were trying to, to get across. Um, you know, they had their own point that they, that they took away from it. So I remember when I told the story about um, having to um, tell an eight-year-old daughter or an eight-year-old uh, girl that her mom had died, um, I, I never actually ended up having to tell her. You know, we were called to, to go pick her up and to, to find a placement for her. And we ended up finding a relative for her. And, and although that's why the, we were initially called out there to help her and, and the police were like, you got to come tell this eight-year-old girl, you know, her mom just died in a car crash. And we, we never actually did. And when I told the story, I never talked about that. I just talked about, you know, how much this, I knew how much this girl's life had just changed and she didn't even know it yet. And we were just sitting, you know, at Bob Evans having pancakes and just having these thoughts about, about how this uh, young girl's life had changed. And so we, we ended up finding relatives who came in and picked her up and we didn't have to tell her that her mother had passed away. And one of the audience members came up afterwards and they said, they said, so did you have to tell her? I said, I said, no, we, we never did. Um, so I, I, it's very interesting, the, the things that people take away. Yeah, that's interesting. Did you feel like, oh, I should have said that? Or you like, did that make you rethink your story at all? Not, not really. Yeah. Um, you know, cause that you wasn't, <laughs> yeah, it, it was more about, um, it was more about the feeling, you know, having that burden on your shoulder. And that's more of, you know, what I was trying to convey of um, the the weight of some of the decisions and the responsibilities that, that we have more so than actually the actual act of telling her or having to, to go through with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On the, uh, on the flip side, um, you know, that was a very sad and serious story. I told a very funny story of an epically terrible date um, at an open mic last month. Um, and when they dinged me, I actually said part of my story now. I mean, it wasn't recorded, but part of my story now officially Karen, is, Karen, damn it. <laughs> Karen got dinged. I did. It's, I, you know, I, you know, you, you've got to be able to take it if you're going to dish it out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I got dinged. Um, and I said, damn it, on the microphone because I wasn't even <laughs> near done because that's how epically terrible this date was. And uh, But what was hilarious was nobody felt cheated. I was the only one who felt cheated that I didn't get to say the whole thing. Right. Yeah, because nobody knows what you didn't tell. Exactly. Only you do. Exactly. So when you got dinged, did you, you, so you definitely heard it. Oh, yeah. Because it seems like sometimes when people are dinged on stage, they, they either don't hear it or they're just ignoring it. You know, they're so engrossed in their story. They're engrossed with the audience that they, they, they don't even recognize it. Yeah, that's been actually a work in progress of like the perfect ding. <laughs> because sometimes I'm, I'm trying to not, like startle everybody and then it's too soft um and then sometimes it's really loud and then there have been times where i was just moving stuff around and then i accidentally dinged someone like 30 seconds in (laughs) no keep talking keep talking that was my fault um but um now they're all worried now they're worried they're like was i supposed to tell a different story was (laughs) that why why am i being dinged is this the gong show (laughs) (laughs) have i ever dinged you i don't think so i'm I'm usually uh, a little brief so I always try to go, you know, under under our our minimums. Uh, so I don't think that I have, and if I have, then obviously I've ignored it. <laughs> yeah. So Matt, you're telling a story at Beat the Clock. Yes. Is there anything that you can tell us without giving it away that will get people saying, "I, I mean, people are going to want to come to the show anyway"? But what can you say to get them there? Well. The uh, the beat the clock story is uh, I I I was in the uh, I was in the pool the other day, and uh, we, we talk about deadlines and and uh, time frames, and I was trying my best to swim a mile in under thirty minutes, and I ended up swimming in, in thirty one minutes and, and twenty four seconds, and I thought after I got done. You know, I've got a watch that's timing me every lap. And of course, I have a, a, a goal for every lap. And I get to the end and I'm the only one in the, in the swimming pool and it's on a Sunday. And I'm going, how goofy is this? You know, I'm in a pool doing laps back and forth, trying to 
be this self-imposed time of 30 minutes to swim a mile, but the story for Beat the Clock is about trying to swim much farther than that. Okay. A mile in 30 minutes, is that what you said? Yes. That sounds really hard. I don't think that... I mean, I could go there to make you feel really good about your 31 minutes. Maybe <laughs> 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 like an hour later, Karen, <laughs> you're going to come out of the pool. <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's all perspective because I see swimmers who can swim 18, 20-minute miles. And there's people who are just kind of moderate swimmers. You know, they can swim 35, 40, 40-minute miles. But yeah, yes, yes, the... Uh, the elusive under 30-minute mile has been my target and focus. Excellent. Well, I look forward to hearing your story in November and all the beat-the-clock stories in November. There are going to be a wide range of, uh, of stories about racing against time. Um, so, yeah, well, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. It was nice to have you in the studio. Thank you, AJ, for recording this. Hearsay is a live storytelling show staged monthly in Traverse City, Michigan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. Our podcast is produced by A.J. Scott. Thank you to our venue sponsor, The Workshop Brewing Company, and thank you to Matt Soderquist for joining us in studio. Find out more about Hearsay at our website, hearsaystorytelling.com, where you can pitch your story for all upcoming shows. This is Karen Stein, Hearsay's founder and creative director. Join us in November where our theme is Beat the Clock. Thanks for listening.